I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Stephen Sloman, a professor in the Department of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University, who studies how habits of thought influence the way we see the world, how we make decisions, how we process conversations, and how we respond to conflict. His current research focuses on collective cognition, or how we think as a community, a topic elaborated on in his book with Phil Fernbach, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, published in 2017, which is the topic of today's interview. So Stephen, welcome to Delving In. Well, great uh, to be here, Stuart. Thanks for inviting me. So as you reiterate in the conclusion of your book, The Knowledge Illusion, there were three central themes covered, ignorance, the illusion of understanding, and the community of knowledge. So let's spend the next 20 minutes or so fleshing these out a bit so we can get an overview of the book. And after that, we can apply the ideas to one or two areas, maybe uh, political views and effective leadership. So just kind of enlighten us, so to speak, about these three broad themes. Okay, well, so the idea of ignorance is simply that human beings just don't know that much. 10% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. I got into this because I was sort of shocked by the level of discourse in the news. You know, there's this sort of one narrative that's assumed and it just keeps being rehashed over and over and over. And even people who are experts um, seem to have very limited knowledge bases. And, and this has been documented in a way. In fact, there's a cognitive scientist, um, unfortunately deceased now, who did a kind of back of the envelope calculation based on a bunch of data from memory experiments and argued that the human capacity to remember symbolic information, like verbal information, for instance, is about one gigabyte, which is probably one three hundredth of the, the capacity of the computer sitting on your desk. So we simply don't have large memory stores for detail. And in fact, I, I don't think that's how the human mind works. We're, we're very amazing in, in some ways, but for the most part, not in terms of our ability to remember. So that is the theme of ignorance. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Uh, so when you say remember, you're talking about recall memory. I mean, actually being able to recall something and repeat it as opposed to some kind of implicit memory or even unconscious memory. There are things that we know and we learn, but we can't necessarily uh, say. The thing about implicit memory is that it's often not symbolic in nature, right? So implicit memory is about our ability to reenact actions for the most part. It's true that some of those actions uh, occur at a rather cognitive level. But the, the, the real question is, how well do we understand how the world works? And implicit memory, there's, there's no evidence that I know of that we have implicit memories for how the world works. We have implicit memories for how to act in response to stimuli, right? So we have implicit memories for how to ride a bike or how to even perhaps how to draw an elephant. But those kinds of abilities I would not characterize as 
an understanding of how the world works. I've been studying causal reasoning for 20 years now. And causal reasoning refers to the ability to be able to explain phenomena in the world causally and to be able to use those understandings to make predictions. So there's a kind of explicit understanding implied by that. I wouldn't say that by ignorance, I'm referring only to our ability to recall, because I think it also refers to our ability to recognize. I know that you wanted to focus on political issues. So let me take a political example. If you consider Obamacare, you know, how well do people understand Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act? It turns out if you ask people, they, they don't understand it very well. They have a few slogans associated with it, but their knowledge of the actual provisions is quite limited. You know, I suspect even Obama's knowledge of the provisions of Obamacare are, are quite limited because it, it's a massive document. It's like a 20,000 page document. So not only can't we recall it, we probably wouldn't recognize it either. The information about it is simply not there. Okay, but let's talk also about the second one, the illusion of understanding, which it, it, it sounds like, and then you talk about this in the book, that not only do we not know that much, but we don't even realize what we don't know. So this is really the heart of the matter. I'm not interested in criticizing people's knowledge base. I, I am equally ignorant about things. The thing about people that I think often causes problems is not that we're ignorant, it's that we don't appreciate how ignorant we are. That is, we think we understand things better than we do. And that's really what the knowledge illusion is. That's where the title of the book comes. So we think we understand, say, how toilets work, or how Obamacare works, or how bicycles work. But when you query people and find out what they really understand, it turns out that they don't understand nearly as much as they think they do. Well, they probably understand that when you press the handle on the toilet, it flushes, right? That's, that's, that's the extent that they need. So and that's right. They understand often how to use things effectively, but that's different than understanding how they work different from understanding them well enough that they can fix them or they can you know troubleshoot them in any way or they could predict what would happen if you do something unusual with them right so i would say understanding that you should push the lever and hopefully the water will descend is first of all a kind of procedural knowledge you introduced that term into the conversation it's a great term um, but it's also very limited in course and not very helpful if if the toilet isn't working properly. Right. Or to give another example, when we use the term computer literacy, usually I think for most people it means being able to use programs, you know, use Microsoft Word or, or whatever it is. It doesn't mean being able to do coding or to even understand the operating system all that well, but just to be able to use the computer for what they need. Oh, sure. And and so look, human beings are very functional. I mean, we get a lot done. We can use things effectively and often, not always. That generally presupposes a kind of understanding, right? So in order to use Word, you have to know what a menu is and you have to know that if you press a button, you're going to get a range of options. There are 
uh, things you have to understand about how Word works in order to use it. But you're absolutely right that you can use things effectively without a deep understanding. That deep understanding has to be present somewhere, right? Someone has to understand it. Your machine certainly has to understand. But you're you're absolutely right that we can use things without understanding them. Again, the point of the book is that we think we under, understand them better than in fact we do. So how do you go about demonstrating empirically that we know less than we think we do? And is and is that at all a controversial subject? And has the methodology of this would some people say, oh no, that doesn't show that it that people are as ignorant as you say they are? I mean, it, it, how do you convincingly demonstrate that we know so little? <laughs> well, so the seminal study was done by uh, Leon Rosenblatt and Frank Kyle at Yale in the early two thousands, and what they did was they took a bunch of common objects and asked people how well they understood them. So on a scale to one of one to seven, how well do you understand the mechanism by which a toilet works or a ballpoint pen, you know, or a helicopter? They took common objects and asked about, asked people to rate how well they understood them. And then they said, now explain how it works. Explain in as much detail as you can what the causal mechanism is by which this works. And what they discovered was in the vast majority of cases, people hemmed and hawed and couldn't really come up with an explanation. And so when they again asked them, now how well do you think you understand how it works? People lowered their rating. In other words, people themselves said, you know what, now that you've asked me to explain it, I realize I don't understand as well as I thought I did how this thing works. So it's people themselves sort of coming to this realization. That's one kind of evidence. Another kind of evidence is um, there's a lovely little paper by a woman named, I think it's Rebecca Lawton. I think it's Rebecca at the University of Liverpool. And she simply asked people to draw a bicycle. And people sat down happily thinking they could draw a bicycle and uh, discovered that they drew the the funniest things where chains were connected to both front wheels and back wheels and pedals were disconnected from the chain. The bi these were bicycles that just wouldn't go. It's a, it would actually be an interesting exercise for your listeners to try to draw a bicycle. Seems easy. It turns out to be more difficult than you think. So in those examples, uh, the subjects weren't necessarily all that defensive about their ignorance. Once it was pointed out to them, or actually it wasn't pointed out to them, they pointed it out to themselves, really. Exactly. They were willing to admit it. Yeah. But but I imagine that's not true of all subjects. You know, that's something that's really concrete. You know, drawing a bicycle, you can see that it looks wrong. What my colleagues and I did was to demonstrate <laughs> this in the political domain. We asked people... We, we applied Rosenblatt and Kyle's procedure. We asked people to rate their understanding of political policies and then asked them to explain them and then had them re-rate their understanding. And we found the effect. Um, and in fact, in terms of understanding, the effect is very reliable. And, you know, talking to colleagues, like I mentioned this to one colleague at a conference and she said, oh, people are going to hate your book. Nobody's going to read it. Nobody wants to be told they're stupid. That has not been the reaction at all. Yes, there are some examples of people. There, there are actually people who don't like the book. And there are certainly people who are defensive about 
their knowledge, but very few. And in fact, a much more common response is for people to appreciate the fact that their own doubts about their level of knowledge are shared by other people. You know, I got a lovely email once from a guy who said that he's been suffering from, you know, emotional and, and mental challenges for years. And to learn that everybody is limited in their knowledge is, is very reassuring. Right. So the person thinks to themselves, oh, I'm not so alone in being so ignorant. Exactly. Almost everyone is ignorant. What I, I would say everyone is. You know, we have our very narrow areas of specialization, and outside those narrow areas, you know, we tend not to know all that much. Well, the one little, one troubling uh, factoid in your book is, if I remember right, that people who kn actually know more are less confident of their knowledge, and people who know less are more confident. And I guess that shouldn't be so surprising, but it's troubling nonetheless. Right. So actually what you're referring to was uh, has been very well studied by David Dunning and has been encapsulated in what um, is often referred to as the Dunning-Kruger effect that is, has become quite well known. And the data are a little different than what you suggested, right? What they show is that people who have competence in an area are pretty well calibrated. That is, they know how competent they are. But people who are not competent tend to overestimate their level of competence. But there, but there is a positive relation such that the more competent you are, the more competent you think you are. But nevertheless, there's a greater discrepancy for those people who are lower in competence. But it also seems to me that people on the upper end who are very competent are also more aware of the, where their competence ends. Yes. And what they don't know. So they both know what they know and, and also what they don't know. That's true within their area of competence. Right. That, right. Not so clear that that's true outside their area. Of competence. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of problems begin. Right. So, you know, when you find people who don't trust experts, in, for example, often their problem isn't with the lawyer who claims to know a lot about the law. It's with the lawyer who, who thinks not only do they know about the law, but they also know about what's right and wrong. So it's when people sort of move outside their area of confidence and claim expertise. That's when people get annoyed. And, and there may be a tendency for, for experts to do that more than non-experts. Maybe you develop a habit of, of knowing more than other people and you think it's uh, extended to areas where it's really not true. Think about the surgeons you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, I don't know that many. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I play a lot of squash, and um, mm -hmm. and and you you discover uh, people's <clears throat> level of confidence on the squash court very quickly, and their willingness to make calls about whether the ball was in or out. And I do find that sometimes uh, it's it's the people who are high ranking off the squash court, who think that they're also the best judges on the squash. Well, uh, one of the uh, references in your book that I think uh, maybe is a really good antidote to, to this problem uh, was a course that you mentioned uh, that is, that's taught at Columbia called Ignorance. And where guest speakers from various scientific disciplines come in and, and talk to the class about what's not known in their field. You know, what's the, what's the cutting edge? What are the questions, basically? Right. And what, what a great way to stimulate learning and also to 
kind of encourage a kind of humility in, in what and in, in how we estimate what we know. Yeah, that that course is taught by a gentleman named Professor Firestein. And I think that's right. I think that uh, many universities, places of education could use a course like that. Uh, you know, one thing he points out in his book is the necessary limits on human knowledge, right? There's only so much we can know. In fact, there are theorems in, in, in math and in computer science showing the limits of what is knowable. There's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in physics showing that if you know one thing, then you can't know another. That's sort of built into the system. So there are definite limits on how much we can know. It's worth pointing out that his concern is with science. And I think that the issues that apply to science are obviously very closely related, but not identical to the issues that apply in real life, in everyday life, in the sense that a scientist has to know what the boundaries of their knowledge are because that's determining their pursuits. That's determining the course of science. Knowing what you don't know tells you, or is a guide to progress. It's a guide to the kind of research that has to be done in order to further science. Not all of everyday experience has that quality. And science has the advantage of agreed upon principles for determining what is known or what is demonstrated at least what's what constitutes evidence and peer-reviewed journals i mean it's 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 got a, a good set of rules <laughs> where uh, outside of science maybe it's less clear so one area that we haven't touched on yet of, in terms of the main themes of the book is the community of knowledge and that, that's really central to to your book so let, let's talk a bit about that so the question arises you know we're we're accusing people of being so ignorant <laughs> Humans have got to the moon and we build incredible computers and cities and incredible works of art. And so humanity has achieved so much. How is that possible if people are so ignorant? And the answer we offer, which is really an old answer, I mean, it could be traced back uh, at least 300 years and, and some would argue for thousands of years. The answer we offer is that we don't think alone, that the very process of thought is something that engages other people. We depend on other people for our thought. There's a division of cognitive labor such that we have our own areas of specialization and others have their areas of specialization. And success in thinking comes from people working and thinking together. So that's the community of knowledge. So we should think about thought not as a process that occurs inside the skull, but as a process that occurs within a community. We're constantly depending on one another for their knowledge. We're not asking for that knowledge necessarily. It's not that knowledge necessarily gets transferred from one person to another. This isn't a claim about the nature of human learning. The idea is that when we're thinking, we actually are depending on information that sits in other people's heads and never gets transferred to us. So a simple example comes from uh, the, a philosopher, very famous philosopher named Hilary Putnam. He argued for what in philosophy is, is often called externalism, 
And he pointed out that there are certain words that we use, and the meaning or the reference of the word is determined by people outside ourselves. So I might say, I hope one day to see a piece of molybdenum. And it's true. I do hope one day to see a piece of molybdenum, even though I don't know what molybdenum is. Right? <laughs> I think I really have. It's, it, I know it's some kind of rock or mineral or or something like that. But nevertheless, my sentence makes perfect sense because I believe there are people out there in the world who can identify molybdenum and will tell me that lo and behold, I've seen a piece of molybdenum. And a lot of the words we use have this property. I might say, I hope one day to go to Tahiti. But the truth is, like, I could, it would be tough for me to locate Tahiti on a map. And I don't really know anything about it. I have some vague images of palm trees. That's about it. There may not even be palm trees on Tahiti. I don't know. But I believe there are people out there who not only could get me there, but who could, you know, rent a hotel room for me and, and, and make sure I have a lovely time. So a lot of our thinking depends on knowledge that's sitting in other people. Or in the modern age, sitting in the internet, you know, that we have access to this vast store of, of information and it's there to be tapped. And so maybe we're losing the sense of the, the distinction between what's in our heads versus what's outside our heads because it's, it's so fluid. The internet is certainly a very, very important part of our community of knowledge. Uh, you know, it's an interesting question whether we're losing the sense. I mean, the, the issue in my mind is, did we ever have a sense of, of how much we actually knew and how much we actually depend on other sources of information? Mm -hmm. I, I think human beings, at least Western human beings, have a strong tendency to locate the source of thought, the source of ideas in the individual. That's why we think of Einstein as the source of all physics or, or modern physics, when Galileo is the source of ancient physics. We, we, and, and we think of Tom Brady as you know, the source of everything good on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers right now. Um, we give individuals immense amounts of credit. We see things through the eyes of individuals rather than appreciating that we live mm -hmm. in a village, that it's really a whole community, a whole group that, that gets things done. Well, as you say, I mean, thinking of individuals as the source makes for a better story. And we, and we tend to be uh, very much attracted to stories and in fact, store our knowledge as stories as well. Another really interesting phrase that you have in your book is that information is stored in the world. And I don't know if that's meant literally or just that the world is this is the source of information, whether it's actually stored as information is another question. But it, it reminds me of of the uh, you know the paradox about vision that the highly detailed part of our vision in the in the center of the retina and the fovea is very small in terms of our visual field. And yet we I think all have a sense that the world is out there in focus all the time, when in fact, we're just sampling all the time, but we have an illusion that it's all there. And it's all there because it is all there, not in our, on our retina, but in the world, it's there to be exactly. so anywhere we look, we're going to see it. And of course, we, I think, forget that there's so much out of focus, because anywhere we look, it's in focus, because we're concentrated, we're, we're literally focusing our attention where it's most focused. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, you just said it better than I ever could have. Uh, that, that's exactly the point. So I do think that processing it, that information really is retained in the world. It's not just the source. And, and I think you've just provided the best illustration of that. We run around the world thinking we have a model of the entire three-dimensional world or fourth dimension, if you want to include time. But in fact, if you query people, like what's behind you right now? Or you know, what does the ceiling above your head look like? And if you don't look, then you realize that you know much less about it than you thought you did. We sort of we think that we have this this picture that we're very oriented in the in a model of the entire world when it turns out that we're operating on the basis of very small I mean critical but but small windows of information and that turns mm -hmm. out to be sufficient. So I'd like to take a risk here and, and become a little bit political. Okay. Your book was published in 2017. I imagine you were, must have been writing it before 2017. So yeah. probably the bulk of it was written before Trump was elected. Yes. And, you know, it's fine to say, okay, this, the source of knowledge is in the community. It's in the world. It's, it's, you can tap into it anytime. But then there leads to the question of, well, what's your source of information? How reliable is it? And I, I'm always lamenting, you know, why couldn't Walter Cronkite have been the immortal? I mean, he was so trusted. He was like the last person trusted by everybody as a news source. <laughs> I, I said I made exactly that point about Walter Cronkite once in the panel. And I got hell for, you know, appealing to, to an old white man as the source <laughs> of all information. While I, while I agree with the sentiment, we, we should be aware that there's another view of that. Uh -huh. But no, anyway, that's, that, that's right. So, so because uh, our knowledge depends on others, what we know is only as good as what our community knows. And it's certainly the case that often our community is wrong. And, and that's become more and more apparent. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's worth appreciating that one reason we know that's more apparent is because we have more access to the truth. So we have a greater information flow. And while a lot of that information is misinformation, there are means now to decide that it's misinformation because we have so much actual you know, good information available to us as well. I have a set of studies with a colleague of mine, Nat Rabb, where what we do is we show that when other people understand something, you think you understand it better. So we, we ask people how well they understand, and we don't tell them anything about like either a scientific phenomenon or a political policy, but we say experts out there, they understand it. How well do you understand? And it turns out that telling them that experts understand it caused them to think they understand it a little better. So merely finding out that the knowledge is there gives people this very small bump in understanding. So, you know, if everyone around you knows why Hillary is crooked or thinks they know, they understand that Hillary is crooked, then you're going to think you understand that Hillary mm -hmm. is crooked. And if those people get their sense of understanding because the people around them think that Hillary is crooked, it could be that you have a whole community that thinks they understand that Hillary is crooked, but nobody actually has the goods. So our sense of understanding can be a house of cards in that. 
So maybe uh, there's an illusion that understanding is being mistaken for confidence in a belief. You know, those two things are conflated. What's being increased really is the confidence in the belief because you, let's say if you really have confidence in your source of information and that source seems to be really extra confident about a particular item, then you think that you, you know because you've been told it's true. You know, it's kind of uh, knowledge based on authority rather than any kind of nuanced investigative understanding, yeah. which is probably the way most of us believe in all sorts of things. So that may be the ultimate reason for this phenomenon. In, in fact, that, that's what follows from living in a community of knowledge, that we depend on others to tell us what's true and what we can and should believe. Um, it doesn't fully explain this particular phenomenon I'm talking about. To show that, I'd have to go into the details of the experiment. But, you know, I'll try to do that briefly. So what we do is we, well, first we tell people what we mean by understanding is the ability to explain and predict and to fix problems. By understanding, we mean really having a causal model of what's going on. And then we say, here's this thing, and we don't offer any information about it. And we say other people understand it, right? That is, they have a causal model of how it works. How well do you understand it? How rich is your causal model merely by virtue of the fact that others do? Others aren't telling you what to believe. We're not, we're not actually passing any information in these studies. We're simply saying the understanding is out there. How well do you understand? So ultimately, it, you're right that it may be that people's sense of understanding emerges because we assume that other people are going to be the source of our belief. But in these particular cases, there is no belief offered. There's no information being transferred. We're not even telling people that they should believe them, anything. We're simply saying someone else understands something. How well do you understand? You know, one question I have, which I'm not sure that you, is in your book, is is the concept of media literacy. It's something that I've been advocating for a long time. Uh, I was a school psychologist for, for, for 26 years, and I really wish that there were courses in media literacy starting in upper elementary school. It seems it seems more important to me than almost anything. How do you identify reliable sources of information? How do you distinguish them from bogus sources? And we don't seem to teach that very, very much in, in schools at all. So, yeah, I have a bit of a outsider position on this issue. The, the idea that our knowledge is housed in a community suggests that if we're going to get things right, what we have to figure out more than anything is who to trust. In other words, what's less important is trying to understand the issues themselves. So let, let's go back to Obamacare. Obamacare is incredibly complicated. And to fully understand it would take several weeks, at least, of intense study. And that's true of almost any serious policy that we are considering. The, the mere complexity of the world means that we can't possibly understand all of it. We have to depend on others. Media literacy is, is an interesting concept. And depending on what you mean, it may get around the problem. 
often what I hear is we have to develop people's critical reasoning skills. Let me tell you, Stuart, I've been studying human reasoning for 30 years now. And I don't know what critical reasoning skills I could give people to allow them to distinguish fake news from. So it's true you can give people recipes for what they could do when they read something on Facebook to decide if it's true. In fact, it's not that hard. You just sort of Google it and, uh, and are careful about you know, which web pages you go to and which you don't. That's the crux of it. You know, how do you know which web pages are reputable and which ones aren't and reputable by whom? Okay, so that's the, the crux of it. So it's a matter of knowing who to trust. It's A, not so much a matter of reasoning. But the real point I'm trying to make is nobody's going to take the time to do that with every issue that they face because we face too many issues on a consistent basis. So really what we need is an environment in which people are challenged for saying things that are false, right? More than trying to develop techniques to allow individuals to figure out what's true and false. I, I'm just not optimistic that there are such techniques. I mean, do you have particular techniques in mind? Well, not so much techniques, but it does seem to me that uh, it would be helpful if there were some sources on the internet, for instance, that people could go to and have confidence in. So for instance, one that I use on occasion is called SourceWatch, and it tells you who funded a particular organization. So you know, for instance, we have a letter writer to the newspaper here who's always advocating in, in favor of fossil fuels and never mentions global warming, and it's touted as being a uh, objective, uh, nonpartisan group. And you look it up on SourceWatch, and lo and behold, the first funder is the Koch brothers, and the second funder is funded by the Koch brothers. So, you know, and, and that, that immediately should, I think, give rise to at least some suspicion that there's vested interest here. It's not as nonprofit as it seems, even though it might officially be. Yeah, no, but of, of course, I couldn't agree more. And that's why I think, you know, appealing to the Walter Cronkites around us is the way we have to go. But just note that, you know, if you have a purveyor of false information that is being contradicted by SourceWatch, the first thing that purveyor is going to do is say, don't trust SourceWatch, right? In, in just the way that the Republicans today are saying, yeah. don't trust the news. Often these sources of, of truth, like political fact, even if they're not actually politicized, they're painted that way. I mean, the thing is that purveyors of misinformation are not stupid. They're, in fact, quite brilliant in their ability to purvey misinformation. And the first thing they'll do is look at the way you're going to argue against them and, and try to defeat that method. Right. So when you talk about the community of knowledge, we actually have competing communities of knowledge with a small k. Some of them might have a capital K where they're actually looking for truth, and other of them have a small K which, where they manufacture the truth. And it's so important to distinguish between the two. But as you say, it's no, it's no easy task to distinguish in the first place, and it's probably even harder to persuade people to take a closer look. Absolutely, and, yeah. No, look, I think it's all about method. It's all about having a, a way to determine what's right and what's wrong. And as you pointed out earlier, 
science is supposed to have such a method. But note that you know science has as many internal controversies as as any other domain of human knowledge. I mean, scientists disagree with each other all the time, but they do have this process of peer review and replication that should eventually arrive at truth. And I think the progress we've been seeing in science suggests that, in fact, it's a good method. And yeah, I wouldn't say arrive. I would say maybe uh, point themselves in the right direction toward truth. Okay. We never, we never really arrived. No, no, no. That's a quibble here. I think we're, we've covered, I think, probably the main points of your book. So let's talk more about uh, some of the applications. We've talked about science. We've talked about politics. We could also talk about financial literacy, that one of the examples, a big example in your book is how people don't really understand compound interest. They don't understand mortgages to their great detriment. And that's a great example in the sense that the outcomes, the, the negative outcomes are so measurable because it's money. And uh, you quote Cass Sustin and Richard Toller for their suggestions of libertarian paternalism. I thought that was a very interesting term. So please explain for us what that means and what they were suggesting. Yeah, so Thaler and Sunstein wrote this book a few years ago called Nudge, which um, has sort of taken the world of behavioral science by storm. And what they promote in that book as, as you said, is this philosophy called libertarian paternalism. The idea is that we can use behavioral science in order to nudge society in directions that society wants to go. So let's say 80% of people want to be organ donors. It turns out that asking people to sign the back of their driver's license in order not to be an organ donor is much more effective at producing organ donors than having people sign the back of their driver's license in order to be an organ donor. In other words, if the default is that you're an organ donor, unless you choose not to be, then you get a lot more organ donors, much closer to the 80% that corresponds to society's will than if, if the default is that you're not an organ donor. The idea is to come up with these processes for having societies make decisions, what they call the architecture of choice, in a way that's paternalistic because you're choosing a method that will nudge in a particular direction. Hopefully, it's the direction society actually wants to go, and, and you've independently determined that. But it's libertarian in that you're not forcing anything on anyone. You are always giving people full freedom of choice. So this idea of using behavioral science to not limit choice, but nevertheless nudge society in positive directions has had a huge influence on the field of judgment and decision-making, which is closely related to behavioral economics. You know, there, there are people who, who don't trust it and complain about it. But the idea is that instead of moving people through information campaigns or by providing incentives, we can move them by taking advantage of our understanding of how people work. It's really interesting that they're willing to call it paternalistic, because that, that implies that some people actually do have greater knowledge than others more based on science, more based on, on 
investigation and thinking things through and and that the people who know more should feel a responsibility for organizing the decision making of people who know less and in that sense it is paternalistic i don't necessarily have a problem with that but it's very different than a, other portions of your book that seem to be trying to kind of democratize ignorance you know that well we're we, all of us know so little let me offer but, but, a, a counterexample from from our book of that. You know, one thing we do in the book is we argue against referenda. We argue against, you know, mm -hmm. states like California, which love to put many issues in front of the people and have choices made by popular vote. We don't think that's a good idea, right? We don't think that Brexit was a good idea simply because the people voted for it. And, you know, why not? Well, it's because people are limited in their understanding. Most individuals are not in a position to make a wise decision about whether mm -hmm. Britain should leave the European Union or how taxes on dwellings should be determined in, in a state. That's why we have representatives, so that they can educate themselves and make informed decisions. So if you have a community, if understanding is distributed throughout a community by virtue of the narrow specializations people have, whenever you have a decision to make, you should appeal to the experts. So I, I actually mm -hmm. think the key idea of the book is perfectly aligned with, you know, Thaler and Stunstein's notion of nudge or libertarian paternalism in the sense that, yeah, we should rely on expertise. And, and much of the problem in our society comes when people who aren't experts claim they are or act as if they are. And then we have the problem of people selecting representatives who themselves have as much or more ignorance than the people electing them. <laughs> so that's, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of the central problem of democracy. On the one hand, you don't want to have a, a dictatorial system, you know, where people have no choices and have to rely on the dictator being benign, which is probably a minority at the time. Uh, on the other hand, you have a democracy where people have a voice, but a voice based on very little knowledge. It's it's really a conundrum. I don't know if there's any kind of any perfect solution to this. Um, well, I do think that representatives are at least in a position to either inform themselves or more often to find out who the experts are and rely on the experts. Um, well, they should. They should. That, that it seems <laughs> to me, is, is the, the function of a, of a politician. So it's fine for a politician to be ignorant if they surround themselves with people who have relevant expertise and appeal to people who have relevant expertise. Right. So that's, that's the promise, but you know, there's the danger that that's not happening. In right. many cases, certainly there's the danger that that's not happening. And look, I don't want to pretend that that's a silver bullet. I mean, the fact is that experts often disagree themselves. But I, I do think that at least the debate should be held among informed experts as opposed to millions of citizens who actually have no real information to bring to bear. Right. But then in your book, you also talk about a concept that's uh, really related to knowledge versus belief. And you talk about uh, beliefs being embedded in community, culture, and identity, and very often a political position is based on sacred values. 
really rather than information. So it's kind of like the old saw that it's, uh, if you want to get ahead, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and, and more so in maybe other countries, but this country certainly also. Uh, but it's not also um, what you know, but it's who knows it. And is, it, is the person who knows it someone who's of influence to you? Is it a you know close relative, a close friend, a lover? I mean, you know, it's we tend to be influenced based on who else has that position and what community we're embedded in rather than uh, some kind of objective analysis. Yeah, so often what defines communities, ideological communities, is not their understanding of how the world works so much as the set of values that they espouse. And too often, um, our positions on things are a function of those values rather than a function of a considered assessment of how well something would work, how well a policy would work. So, you know, back to our Obamacare example, many people, many people's views on Obamacare are determined by their value about whether the government should be involved in healthcare or in the degree to which healthcare should be universal in this country, right? These are sacred values that people hold, and if they associate one or the other with Obamacare, then they're done, right? They have this incredibly simplistic notion that is sufficient to determine their attitude. And of course, where do the sacred values come from? Well, they come from their community, and generally you have communities, ideological communities, that will have an attitude uh, about something like Obamacare, that's an issue that's become politicized. And ju just to quickly finish, you know, the alternative is to actually think hard about what Obamacare is and what its actual consequences would be. Of course, that's something that requires real knowledge and real expertise, and most of us are not in a position to do that. Then you have the problem that sacred values doesn't necessarily have to, to do anything with religion. It could just be what's sacred is is the belief that's held by your by your community. So oh, uh, a more recent example than Obamacare would be in the pandemic, the beliefs about vaccinations and masks. Yeah. And it's become sacred in a sense, you know, what you believe. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I often I use the term protected values now rather than sacred values mm -hmm. because uh, for exactly that reason, I want to make it clear that these values aren't necessarily religious values. Mm -hmm. I, I recently mm -hmm. published a paper uh, with some colleagues showing that the best predictor of people's likelihood of wearing masks and social distancing and getting a vaccination is their political beliefs. Right? Like that's a better predictor than their actual level of risk to COVID or even their perceived level of risk to COVID. Mm -hmm. And then that comes right back to the conundrum of who do you trust? Which sources do you trust? The people on the side of vaccinations and masks said, we have science behind us and you should listen to us. And the CDC is based on science. And then on the other side, he said, no, but wait a second. The government is corrupt and they're giving false information and you can't trust them. And this a little bit of truth. I'd say on one side and a lot more on the other side because I'm biased. <laughs> Everybody feels that way. The only question is which side is which, right? Well, that's the question, though. Is it an equal contest? I mean, it certainly seems that way in terms of what people ultimately believe. Right. But is there any way to adjudicate between these or is it just a kind of sociological question? You know, who's going to win out? I mean, I, I, it seems to me that, you know, science is and ought to be privileged. 
in some way because it's the only method that we know of that has some kind of objectivity to it, um, verifiability and repeatability of experiments, and you know, especially in the in the uh, physical sciences, but even at least to some extent in, in the social sciences, we should be crediting it more than than a lot of people do, and maybe it's people who don't don't really understand what science is and maybe overestimate its its biases. Well, look, I, I think you and I are on the same page on this one. And uh, I, I definitely think the criteria of science uh, are the right criteria. Unfortunately, the argument becomes a little circular. Well, why are the criteria yeah. of science the right criteria? It's because I believe in science. <laughs> you know, and I mean, another way to say it is, look at the people who are making predictions that come out correct in the future. That's really the demonstration of understanding. And what I want is to maximize understanding. But someone else comes along and says, well, it's God's will, and I'm going to behave this way because it's God's will. Then I don't know how to respond to that. I'm, I'm not sure there is any kind of sufficient response that's going to change their minds and be consistent with my beliefs. It's, it, it is a terrible conundrum. On the other hand, I actually think we overestimate the extent to which the other side doesn't buy into the principles of science. So let me give you an example. My, my colleague, Phil, who, my co-author, Phil, spent uh, a couple of days at, it was either the Flat Earth Society or the Society of Flat Earthers. I can, I can never remember which. But what I do remember is those two societies hate each other. He, he spent a couple of days listening to them. And what he discovered was they're very scientific. They have mathematical answers to all of his questions. Or at least there's someone in the room who has a mathematical answer to all of the problems that you might mm -hmm. pose to this idea that the earth is flat. So it's not that they reject science. It's rather that they just start from a different set of premises. And I think that hmm. you know, that's often true of people with regard to climate change or vaccination. I mean, the argument that vaccines haven't been tested enough and therefore I don't consider them safe, I, I disagree with that. I, I think it's kind of silly, but it's valid. It's logic, logical and, and even plausible. Well, it, it, there's a concept called cherry picking in science. You know, people cherry pick their facts and have a uh, confirmation bias. You know, they're looking for the facts that will support their position rather than looking at all the evidence. Sure. And I, I, I tend to think that people who are flat earthers or vaccine resistors, I mean, tend to be cherry pickers uh, of mm -hmm. sorts. And, and, and I think also uh, the fact that you can't have 100% certainty in science is a hallmark of science. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that. I think that science is telling me what to believe. Well, science is, is not telling you what to believe. It's just telling you what's what the probabilities are for what's true. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think that the hallmark of someone you should believe is someone who often says, I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. or, or better, who says, um, nobody knows. Or someone who says, you know what, I changed my mind about that because I, I learned something and discovered the fact. So absolutely, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about how the world works. And those who admit that uncertainty to me are the most trustworthy ones. I do want to say one thing, though, which is that 
yes, flat earthers suffer from confirmation bias. Yes, those who are vaccine hesitant suffer from confirmation bias. But you know what? I suffer from confirmation bias too. And in fact, mm -hmm. I live among scientists. And I don't know a one of them who doesn't suffer from confirmation bias. That's just a fact about being human. So, so I, I don't think it's a criterion in which to dismiss one group and admit another one. Well, this is the tricky thing is that all sides suffer from these things, whether it's confirmation bias or relying on the community of knowledge and, and uh, overestimating what you yourself know. All these things are true. And yet, I don't think that the two groups, let's say the flat earthers versus people who know that the, uh, that the earth goes around the sun, I don't know if it makes sense to put them on equal footing just because we all have biases. I mean, there's, there's a matter of degree also. And then maybe there isn't an ultimate way. I mean, we don't have God coming down and you know pointing at one group, say, you this, listen to this group and pointing to the other group and say, ignore that group. I mean, we don't have that kind of uh, ultimate confirmation. Yeah, no, look, there's clearly a difference. I guess I just see the difference as one that's on a continuum rather than binary. Yeah. Okay. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll grant um, that you is, that. The, the, the question is, how much do your beliefs cohere with your other beliefs? And how much do they cohere with, you know, the beliefs of those that we respect? And, and then the question mm -hmm. becomes, well, who do we respect and who should we respect? And my decisions about that are to some degree a matter of faith. That is, I have faith in Francis Bacon, right? I have faith in the Enlightenment and the view that science does in fact uncover truth. All right, here's my last question. Does your study of this subject give you optimism or pessimism about uh, going forward in terms of the general population becoming better able to make good decisions, whether it's political decisions or health decisions or financial ones, what have you? Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who uh, is consistently optimistic about the world. And I can't say thinking about the role of ideology and our dependence on others' thinking has made me any more optimistic. But I can say that when I meet younger people, with, who I meet a lot, right? Because I'm a, I'm a professor at a university and I, I teach them and spend hours every week talking to them. I do have the impression that there's a greater and greater understanding of the nature of knowledge and the limitations of knowledge. And so, for instance, I don't think they're as affected by what they see on social media as older people are. Uh -huh. um, and so that makes me feel slightly optimistic about the future, just people's understanding that. Uh, they have to be skeptical about what they hear. Well, that said, I also see theories being perpetuated that strike me as just the kind of ideological narratives that have caused so much polarization and mm -hmm. conflict today. Well, Steve, thank you for that least um, qualified note of optimism, because I do have a bias toward ending my shows that way. <laughs> so thank you for that. So uh, Steve Sloman, a professor at Brown University, who uh, recently co-published a book, uh, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Great pleasure. Thanks for great questions. 
I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.